You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. Last night, around 400 people packed the Martin Luther King Fame Community Center in Seattle's Madison Valley to discuss a proposal at Denny Blaine Park that's causing a whole lot of hullabaloo. That proposal? To build a playground with money from an anonymous donor. Now, typically, a new playground at minimal cost to taxpayers would be greeted with open arms by a community. But in this scenario, it's not that simple. The intent of this project is absolutely not to target any community. For decades, the beach at Denny Blaine Park has been a gathering spot for Seattle's LGBTQ community. And it's one of a handful of spots in the city where folks feel safe picnicking, swimming and sunbathing nude. They say a playground would change all that. Neil Dittman was at the meeting last night. He says that Denny Blaine is a space where he connects with friends. And it's also one of the few places where he can meet those friends without paying. Yeah, so I started going to Denny Blaine uh, this last year in the spring and like... For me, it's like one of the only like free places you can go where there's like, I don't know, Seattle's really expensive and you can't really do anything without spending money. And like for me, like having a space for like gay, queer people, LGBT people too, like that you don't have to spend money to go to and you can just, there's a community there. Like it's, it's a really special place. Ankit Nair agrees with Neil and says that for him, Denny Blaine holds a lot of personal significance. It's given me body positivity like no other. It's helped me come out as pansexual. And like it's just completely changed my life in every shape and, shape and form. Now, Nair says he wants to support the park and its community when it needs him. The Parks Department is currently weighing the proposal from this anonymous donor. And Ann Dornfeld is an investigative reporter at KUOW who's been digging into the fight to preserve Denny Blaine. Ann, welcome back to the show. Hi, Libby. So this is a popular beach and obviously very important to people who attended last night's meeting. Aside from being a nude beach, what makes Denny Blaine so special? Well, this is a really pretty little terraced park. It's been around for 115 years or so. It's on Lake Washington, and it's been popular for decades as a warm weather gathering place for the city's queer community, a place where folks can bear it all, including people who are trans and they might have you know, some operative scars or their, their bodies might look different than um, other people's bodies might on your average beach, and they would feel safe doing so without harassment. If you drive past in the summer, you see lots of glowing tan people coming and going from the beach, carrying towels and floaties and big smiles, kind of makes you want to join them. I hadn't been there, um, though, before until I visited for this story, and I could totally see what people see in it because it's this little jewel box of a of a perch um, right over the lake, but with grass on top and sand below. It's really pretty and, and like a little secret garden. I spoke to Sophie Amity Debs at the beach. She moved to Seattle about three years ago. And and she's been going to Denny Blaine ever since. She told me that she likes coming to this beach because she runs into people that she knows and she really feels safe at the park as a trans woman. I think it's it's really important for a lot of us. I know, especially because it's a mostly trans friend group and a lot of us have felt a lot of shame and discomfort around our bodies, as you know, pretty much everyone does. But uh, also especially is, I think, leveraged against trans people in you know this society. A lot of people who feel really uncomfortable with their bodies are able to have a really freeing experience coming here and being celebrated and just hanging out and, you know, taking in the sun and enjoying a really lovely day without any shame. So this park is nestled in the neighborhood of Madrona down a small side street with multiple homes overlooking the property. How do those residents in those homes feel about having a nude beach in their backyard? 
Well, some neighbors have complained to the city over the years about the beach and how it's used, but the city told them that nudity is legal here and it's a public park. Seattle, of course, has a lot of homes across, you know, around lakes, um, but these are some of the ritziest. The houses beside the beach have each been assessed at about $24 million. This is great Gatsby energy. It's a really elegant part of the city. So it's not surprising that there is some desire by residents to control what they see out their windows. Last month, the Capitol Hill blog reported that a sign from Seattle Parks and Rec and the Seattle Parks Foundation had been posted at Denny Blaine with information about a new proposed play area. Why is there a proposal to place a play area next to a popular nude beach, Anne? Well, the city said that there is a deficit of public play areas near Denny Blaine. Uh, But this hasn't been a part of town the city has prioritized for playgrounds anytime recently. Because of the reasons I mentioned earlier, with these big homes on huge lots, it's not a densely populated area, and these aren't exactly starter homes for young families. You don't see a lot of kids walking the streets around Denny Blaine. Only when people started asking questions about this proposal did the source of the project emerge that it was proposed actually by a private donor who asked the city for anonymity and said that they would foot the bill for the design and construction of the playground, but only if it was specifically at this park. Okay, so it's not something that came through the typical process of the city deciding this area needs a new park, we're going to use taxpayer money to fund it. I mean, this is an anonymous donor specifically wanting this playground at this park. And that leads to, you know, a lot of questions about the motivations behind that. A quick map search shows at least three different parks within a 10-minute walk of Denny Blaine Park, Lakeview, Veretta Park, and Howell Park. So, again, what's behind the Parks Department statement that there is a deficit of public play areas here? Well, I think by play areas, uh, that's their term for playgrounds. From the the city's perspective, there are not enough playgrounds right in that immediate area. There are some nearby for parents, you know, who live in the Madrona area to take their kids. There's a really lovely playground at Madrona Park. And also the beach is being developed as more of a play area nearby. But here's Andy Sheffer, Director of Planning and Development for Seattle Parks and Recreation, presenting at the Parks Commission meeting last month. You can see one of the, actually one of the most significant gaps in play areas in the city um, at this location, just south between uh, 520 and I-90, and it's up. It's great. It's fit. It's a 15-minute walk or greater uh, to any play area. But when you look at the map, there are lots of places in town where th- that would you know, also be the description. And they're not looking at putting playgrounds there right now. Uh, and uh, may I say lots of places where you don't have the kind of economic uh, <laughs> resources that you have in Madrona. Right. It's hard to imagine that um, the kids who live in this immediate area are, are going without. They might even have a swing set in their backyard. So where does this leave Seattleites like Sophie and her friends, Anne? I asked Sophie about her reaction to the proposed playground, and she said she's all for playgrounds, but she says that putting a play area at Denny Blaine really wouldn't be beneficial for anyone. The kids who would be theoretically playing there, their parents, and the beachgoers who see this as a safe space. If a lot of parents think that's a nude beach, they're not going to be bringing their kids here. The playground isn't going to get used. And also people are just maybe going to be less comfortable um, being you know, being nude, being, you know, partially nude or fully nude um, 
if they know that there are going to be kids in the area, especially if they know that there are potentially going to be parents here that aren't going to want to see that, that there's going to be conflict. I think it could really, um, you know, legal issues aside, obviously, like someone could file a suit and people are worried about that. But like, realistically speaking, it's just like it would make the park a worse experience for everyone who uses it. And an anonymous donor has come forward to offer to pay for this park, as we've discussed. Do we have any idea what their underlying motivations are? I mean, I hate to second guess anybody who wants to fund a public play area for kids in the city. But what is behind this, really? I mean, when you have this many protesters showing up at a meeting and saying, what's really here is you're trying to push out the queer community. Well, you know, we don't know the motivations, but um, the speculation is that it's a neighbor who doesn't want a nude beach at their doorstep. You know, certainly if you wanted to put your house on the market, uh, a nude beach outside your door might lower the property value. It could also be a draw for someone with a deep appreciation for the human form, perhaps an artist who likes nudes. But I think for a lot of people, that would that would be a, a downside, especially for a very expensive property. You know, Sophie Amity Debs points out the beach lacks the sight lines needed to keep kids safe in the water. So it doesn't really make sense to put a playground right next to a beach when there is a grassy terraced area and then a little concrete wall and you can't see the beach below. She said that is a great place to sunbathe nude where you aren't, you know, out right out in the open. Yeah, invisible to the street. Exactly, right. But she says that, you know, this just seems like an effort by uh, one or more neighbors to hijack the park. I'd like to say there wasn't a lot of thought put into this location, but it feels like there was one very specific thought put into the location. And it's, I want those queers out of there. So, and nothing is finalized yet. People are certainly being vocal about their feelings on what's happening here. What is Parks and Recreation saying? Well, they declined my interview request. Uh, they did issue a written statement that said that they are uh, just trying to make sure that there are enough play areas for kids and enough shoreline access for youth. But at the community meeting last night, they said that parks need to be welcoming to the LGBTQ community and that they take everything they heard from the public into consideration when deciding whether to move forward with this plan. Ann Dornfeld is an investigative reporter at KUOW, and thank you very much. You're welcome. During last night's meeting, Andy Sheffer from Seattle Parks and Recreation said that they recognize that this park is important. In this meeting, we want to acknowledge the historical use of Denny Blaine Park by the LGBTQIA community. But Denny Blaine isn't just historic. It's an active, popular nude beach today. My next guest says that using language that places these spaces in the past can be a way to erase their significance in the present and into the future. Dr. G. Samantha Rosenthal is an associate professor of history at Roanoke College in Virginia, and she says physical spaces like Denny Blaine Park hold particular significance for queer communities. Queer communities in the United States have always struggled to have their own spaces that are safe, that are inclusive, and where people can be their full selves, present the way they want to present in the world and be together in community. That can look a lot of different ways. There are a lot of queer beaches around the U.S., so that's one way, but also many public parks have histories of queer people gathering in certain spaces. And then, of course, there are establishments like bars and places like that, but public spaces 
out in the public in full visibility of the world. Every city has those spaces. So Seattle's not unique in that way. Your work has focused on queer history as a living practice in Roanoke, Virginia, but you've been watching this Denny Blaine story here in Seattle. Does it echo any instances or any experiences that you've seen in your own community? Yes, for sure. So I live in Virginia, and in the 2000s here in the city I live in, a local neighborhood association was getting fed up with people having sex in the park, in our local neighborhood park, this is the neighborhood I live in. And together with the police department and with the city's approval, they put a dog park in right in the exact spot where gay men historically had met up to have anonymous sexual encounters. And it was interesting because in the news coverage of this 15, 20 years ago, the people who were advocating for the dog park pretty forthrightly said, yeah, this is not the best location actually, but we're going to put it here because having a dog park in this spot will help run out those people who are engaging in practices that we don't agree with. When I heard about the Denny Blaine situation, I thought, well, this is quite similar, but instead of a dog park, it's a playground. But the idea is the same in as much as that when you bring in this new projected use of the space, you're also imagining that different people than the ones who are there now are going to be attracted to that new amenity. And at least here where I live, the intention was very clear that that was the point, that there would be eyes and ears and dogs all the time so that it would be much less accessible to queer people who wanted to meet up in that part of the park. Mm -hmm. In this instance, of course, in 2023 in Seattle, nobody is blatantly saying, or this anonymous donor at least is not saying, I am wanting to put a playground here to push gay people out. But it's more like the Seattle (laughs) passive aggressive move, you know, by adding this play area, you are implicitly pushing people out. Is there something about this particular tactic that speaks to more covert ways that cities try to conceal or sanitize the queer community? For sure. I mean, it may be true that in a place like Seattle or, say, in New York City, where there's also been recent controversy with Jacob Reese Park, which is the main queer beach there, in more progressive, larger cities that have Generally, the political climate is one of acceptance of queer communities, then it it can be much more implicit. You know, I was talking with someone about the situation at Denny Blaine and, and, and was just saying, you know, as a queer person, I think it'd be lovely for if I was going to a queer beach to be able to bring kids, to, you know, bring our family members in, and have fun in that space. But that doesn't seem to be the implicit threat there, right? The the implicit threat is that other people and other users of the space will be attracted to that amenity. It's really hard to separate out motive in these situations, especially if they're not saying what the motive is to put the playground in. So I think you can look at a lot of examples of this all around the country where Queer spaces have been targeted, and the city leaders might not necessarily say queer people or LGBTQ people, but they might talk in a broader sense about crime, being tough on crime, or about 
creating a family-friendly space. That's mm-hmm. language that sometimes is used. Coded, yeah. Yeah, coded. It's interesting because I think, especially a city like Seattle, we would not balk or our city leaders would not balk at putting up a plaque to honor an LGBTQ plus rights leader or, you know, some kind of memorial to the work to advance LGBTQ plus rights. But when it comes to preserving these living spaces that are currently being used, I think the success is spotty. What do you think the fight over the future of Denny Blaine and other queer spaces says about the way cities are protecting these spaces and actually backing up their words with actions? It is easier to build a statue of a queer activist who's no longer around or put a plaque on a building of a space that's no longer queer. That's easier because there aren't people then who are actively occupying those spaces who are challenging the systems of power or just challenging societal norms. I think the active presence of queer and trans people in our cities, in our communities, in our neighborhoods is one of people charting out a different way of being in the world. And some people find that very threatening, right? But that is part of our queer history. It's sort of the intangible part of queer history is that we're part of a long tradition of people who have created our own families. We've created our own forms of kinship. We've created our own housing situations. We have our own ways of meeting each other and how we like to spend time together. We have our own sexual cultures. And we are in an interesting moment right now, I would say probably for the past, particularly the past decade, where a lot of cities are painting rainbow crosswalks and putting up plaques and are nominally honoring the presence of queer communities where they live. But it's much more controversial, it seems, for some cities to accept that queer people are going to continue to use spaces in ways that are different than the ways that they have been designed for. But that's kind of the essence of being queer, is that we have different ways of moving through the world. And so that explains sort of what's happening at Denny Blaine Beach. Dr. G. Samantha Rosenthal is an associate professor of history at Roanoke College in Virginia. Dr. Rosenthal, thank you very much for adding context and your research to this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And at last night's meeting, Seattle Parks and Rec Representative Andy Sheffer told the audience that the department will process the public comments they've received over Denny Blaine and issue a response within the next two weeks. Thanks for listening to Soundside. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org.